This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. In this segment of America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're delighted and honored to welcome Dr. Steve Hankey, a leading world expert on currency boards measuring and stopping hyperinflation, privatization, currency, and commodity trading, water resource economics, and other key topics. Steve Hankey is Professor of Applied Economics and founder and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. As a senior economist on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, he led a team of economists in rewriting the federal government's principles and guidelines for water and land-related resources implementation studies. In addition, he was responsible for designing President Reagan's major privatization initiatives. Dr. Hankey has also held senior appointments in the governments of many other countries, including Albania, Kazakhstan, the United Arab Emirates, and Yugoslavia. He played an important role in establishing new currency regimes in Argentina, Estonia, Bulgaria, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Ecuador, Lithuania, and Montenegro. And on this note, we welcome Dr. Steve Hankey. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us this Saturday morning. Welcome, Dr. Hankey. Good to be with both of you. Uh, Dr. Hanke, uh, U.S. inflation reached 7.9% in February 2022, the highest level in 40 years. And according to the U.S. Department of Labor data, the energy index rose 25.6% over the last year. The food index increased by 7.9%, the largest 12-month increase since the period ending July 1981. Uh, Dr. Hanke, in your excellent piece that you co-authored with John Greenwood titled On Monetary Growth and Inflation in Leading Economists 2021 to 2022, Relative Prices and the Overall Price Level, you compare the economies of the US, UK, Eurozone and Japan, which went through the identical supply chain problems due to the COVID pandemic, and you say, I quote, the overall level of consumer prices in Japan increased by just 0.2% year-on-year in September 2021, even though Japan is subject to many of the same global supply chain issues faced by the United States, the Eurozone, and the UK, notably shortages of electronic chips, cars, steel, coal, and natural gas, and higher container shipping and freight rates. How can it be that Japan's inflation experience during the pandemic deviates so much from that of its advanced economic competitors, the U.S., the U.K., and the Eurozone? 
End of quote. Dr. Hanke, at the time of the release of your piece in the fall of 2021, the difference in inflation between America and Japan was 5.4% in America versus 0.1% in September of 2021. Now, Japan's inflation in February 2022 was 0.9%, while the U.S. inflation was 7.9%. Dr. Hanke, could you kindly share with the listeners why does Japan, which has had the identical supply chain issues as America, experience such low inflation? The key to that, Natasha, is that the growth in the money supply is relatively low in Japan. If you have high money growth, as we have had in the United States since COVID, the average annual rate of growth in the money supply measured by what what the Fed calls M2 has been about 20% per year. That's the highest rate we've experienced in the post-World War II era. And that is why we have so much inflation now. Whereas Japan has not had that acceleration in monetary growth. They have very low monetary growth, and they have inflation less than 1%. Now, also, you have China. China has relatively low and stable monetary growth. Their monetarist, as Milton Friedman was, the, the leader of the monetarist, China is following kind of a Friedman approach to controlling the money supply growth, And the inflation is less than 1% in China. And China has all these supply chain problems too. Switzerland is another place where inflation is low. It's around 1.5%. And they have relatively slow growth in the money supply. So fast growth in the money supply, excess money is in the economy, inflation is in the economy. And we have a a big problem in the United States. The mess has been created by the Federal Reserve. And that is why the Federal Reserve, as well as the White House and President Biden, they want to detract from the fact that the money supply has been exploding, government expenditures have been exploding, the deficit has been exploding, the deficit has been monetized by the Federal Reserve, and we have a lot of inflation. They want to talk about supply chain glitches. You saw Wednesday in the press conference, Chairman Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, he was going on and on about supply chain problems. He said the reason the inflation is drug on and and has not been temporary but persistent is due to the fact that these supply chain problems keep plaguing us. And and we've got this war going on now. in the Ukraine, and and on and on and on with excuses. These are only excuses. Inflation is always and everywhere created by excess money. Right, and in your piece you say, and I quote, in contrast to the consensus view that price increases are due to supply chain disruptions, we argue that, first, U.S. inflation is not the result of problems with the supply chain, but is due to excess broad money growth that you just mentioned. Secondly, the inflation will turn out to be persistent, not transitory, lasting through 2023 and 2024. And thirdly, as a result, the inflation will only subside when the underlying cause excess broad money growth is addressed, 
and reduced to a rate more compatible with an inflation target, which is 2% in the case of the Fed and the Bank of England, and 1% to 3% in the case of the Bank of Israel. Uh, Dr. Hanke, you predict that in the next two to three years, the U.S. will experience 28% increase in the overall price levels. That is the highest inflation rate among the 10 Western economies that you compared. Yes, that that 28% increase over that three-year period is due to the fact that right now we have increase the money supply in the United States since February of 2020. That's when the pandemic started by a little over 40%. And out of that 40% increase, of course, some of, I like to call that increase goes into what I call a monetary bathtub. And, and then we have two drains that come out of the monetary bathtub. One is a drain that uses up money and uh, for real economic growth. So some some of the money coming into the tub, some of the 40% drains out to accommodate real economic activity and growth. Another uh, portion drains out because there is an increased demand for money as the economy grows, as people's income grow. They demand more money in their portfolios to put in money market accounts and beef up their checking account and savings accounts, things like that. So what are we left with in the tub? You're, you're still left after subtracting from those two drains that I just mentioned, you're still left with 30% excess that's in the tub. So we've had a 30% increase in the money supply since the pandemic that is left in the tub. Now, where does that go? That goes in the overflow, and the overflow is, in fact, an inflation drain, and, and that is, drains out over time. There's a lag, of course, but, but that's already in the tub, so, so that, that will be with us no matter what happens. That will be draining out in inflation, and that's why we know the inflation will be around and, until at least going into 2024. Now, you mentioned something in, in the, one of those quotes dealing with what the rate of growth in the money supply should be if the Federal Reserve wanted inflation to hit its 2% target rate of inflation. And, and that rate is what I call the golden growth rate, and the money supply would have to be growing at about 6% per year to hit that 2% target. Right now, it's still growing, still growing at 12.6%. So even today, we've got this excess in the tub, the, the 30%. And on top of it, we're growing the money supply about twice as fast as we should be growing if we wanted to get inflation down to a 2% target level. So, so we have a, a, a lot of problems facing us in the inflation arena. And if you look at the uh, polling data, and they rank the president on various things. How's he doing in the economy? How, how's he doing in foreign policy? How's he doing this, that, and the other thing? How, how is he doing in fighting inflation? That, that's his worst rating. President Biden's in, in big trouble with the public, and public opinion, you know, is, 
is what makes the world go around in Washington, D.C. If public opinion is against you, you've got a big problem if you're a politician. Right. And Dr. Hanke, you say also that the rate of growth in the money supply is swept under the rug in the U.S., and this attitude is comparable to maintaining that the law of gravity applies in every country except the United States. Uh, Dr. Haneke, why is that so? It is just incompetence, political expediency, or something else? Well, I think it's, there's a lot of incompetence because they have not, for a long period of time, been looking at the money supply at the Fed. It's a little bit like if you were flying an airplane and you didn't have an altimeter, you'd have a problem because you might hit a mountain if you didn't know what your elevation was. If you're running a central bank and you don't have a dial that tells you where the money supply is, you might hit a mountain, so to speak. So, so that's an incompetence a- aspect. Now, the other aspect of getting this thing under the rug is is more political expediency you mentioned that because it's they don't want anyone pointing a finger at the fed and saying you know you've made a mess out of things you've grown the money supply too fast you, that's caused inflation they they don't want anyone looking behind the drapes you know to see to see what's in, in there they want to bl- blame it on supply chain shocks and even the president has been blaming it now on Vladimir Putin, of all things. I mean, we had inflation that was with us a long time before any war started in Ukraine. It's kind of ridiculous. He's even tried to, presidents tried to get young people on TikTok, of all things, to spread the propaganda that Putin is the cause of the inflation that we have. I mean, we should have a president that stopped playing TikTok and start paying attention to what's going on in the real world. And Professor Hankey, you co-authored a piece recently published in the Wall Street Journal with Mr. John Greenwood at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and Study of Business Enterprise, of which you founded and co-direct. And the title of the Wall Street Journal piece is, The Fed Needs to Put Its Eye on the Money Supply, and the subheading is, Slowing Its Growth Without Triggering a Recession is a Tricky Proposition. Is the Central Bank Up For It? And we would certainly encourage our listeners throughout the Midwest and the South uh, to review this timely piece in the Wall Street Journal. And I quote from your piece, the Fed also needs to be sure not to err too much in the other direction. If the Fed raises rates so much that the demand for loans evaporates, new deposit creation will plummet and monetary growth will slump. With that, the Fed will have precipitated a recession as Paul Volcker did in 1980-1981, unquote. And Professor Hankey, taking into account the missteps of the Fed and other contributing economic factors, is America heading toward a recession? I think there's a fairly good risk that we will actually experience a recession because getting this inflation under control is a very tricky operation. Once you make a mess, if you're a central bank, to clean the mess up often is difficult. And it looks to me like we are in a zone in which there's a fairly high risk that we'll have a recession. And by the way, the inflation won't go away because remember the bathtub, we have that excess that's going 
in the overflow no matter what. So even if the economy is running okay and real economic activity is fine, we're still going to have inflation. And what we're talking about here, we might have the worst of all possible worlds, and that is a recession and inflation. You're not going to get away with getting inflation tamped down before about 2024, no matter what you do. That's going to be with us. So that's a given. The only question is, will we be able to get this thing under control and not have a recession? Or will we have a recession? The question that you raised. And I think the probability of a recession is probably higher than 50%. And so what would you suggest? Because uh, obviously they just uh, increased the interest rate by 0.25% and they announced uh, six more increases during this year. So how would you take that dynamic? What would your suggestion be in order to avoid going into recession? What they have to do is get the money supply on the dashboard. (laughs) Again, it's the airplane kind of thing. You don't want to fly blind without an altimeter in the, in the plane. And if you're running a central bank, you don't want to fly blind as they're doing right now by not having the money supply in front of you. So as they make these increases in the federal funds rate, they have to be looking at what's on the dashboard, the money supply gauge, and, and seeing if that's going down to the the appropriate level is 6% rate versus 12.6% where it is right now. That's the trick. You've just got to be looking at the money supply very carefully as you're increasing these federal funds rates. And also they talked about starting in May, reducing the size of the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Now they didn't give any details whatsoever about how they might do that. And, and that is, by the way, a, a direct way to reduce the rate of growth in the money supply by reducing the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. But they didn't tell us, interestingly, any details about that. They were very vague about it. So we have to watch what the Fed's doing with the interest rates, and we have to watch what they're doing with their balance sheet. And they have to be always watching the money supply as, as we should be watching it to see where that needle is and whether we're going to be eventually getting rid of this and controlling the inflation. Right now, it's, it's just out of control. Uh, Dr. Hunky, uh, the average price of gas surpassed $4 per gallon, which is the highest level since July 2008. And in your excellent piece, you examine case studies from the first and second oil crisis of 1973 to 74 and 1979 to 80. And you say, and I quote, These are both episodes where the popular narrative explains inflation as a result of OPEC curtailing oil supplies from October 1973, in effect restricting the operation of part of the global supply chain. But based on the evidence, we can dispel the widespread myth that these two oil crises first caused inflation and subsequently precipitated recessions. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Dr. Hanke, could you kindly share with our listeners about your findings and the distinction between the absolute or overall price level and relative price changes? The oil crises in the 1970s 
so-called oil shocks are kind of a good case study, particularly if you look at Japan, because Japan had, had those two shocks. And, and the first shock, when oil prices go up, that, that means the relative price of oil has to be going up compared to other goods and services. So if you have the consumer price index, for example, in the United States, it has about 250 items in there, and oil is one of them, and gasoline is oil and gasoline. So oil shock comes, and the, and the price of gasoline goes up relative to the other 249 items in the, in the basket. But the basket doesn't go up unless the money supply goes up. The level of the basket is determined by what is happening to the money supply, what's going on inside the basket, prices moving up and down relative to one another is another separate issue. And people get that confused. They say, oh, the price of gasoline is going up. That's causing inflation to go up. No, it's causing the price of gasoline to, to go up relative to other things that you're buying, shoes and clothes and accounting services and whatever else you're buying. So let's go to Japan. Japan, the first oil shock actually was accompanied by inflation, an increase in inflation in Japan. And that was because the money supply was in increased in Japan. The second oil shock, in contrast, the oil prices go up, the relative price of oil goes up in Japan, but they didn't have any inflation. And the reason why they didn't is that they they didn't increase the money supply. So that's the, a good kind of what we call a natural experiment. I mean, it, it, it's something that actually happened. You can look at the data and it's obvious what's going on. The first shock in Japan, inflation, that was caused by an increase in the money supply, not increase in the oil. And you can see that by looking at the second oil shock in which there was no inflation increase because there was no monetary increase. So how would you, for example, in our current case in America, how much could be attributed to bad policies by this administration in curtailing the supply of gas in the country versus inflation as an overall measure? Right now, the, the level of production of oil is down from what it was a, a year ago. So to the extent that this can be attributed to Washington, D.C., you'd say, well, uh, Washington has, has put in a number of policies that have, in fact, choked off the production of, of oil and gas. You'd normally think oil and gas production in the United States would be going up because the prices are higher this year than last. What happens when prices go up? Suppliers supply more. You make more money, so you produce more. We've actually produce less. So prices have gone up, but the production's gone down. That suggests that there's some policy problem involved. And we can put our finger where? On Washington, D.C., when we get to that kind of problem. It's a long, complicated story. But one, one obvious thing is that we have oil and gas leases on federal land. The federal government owns a lot of land in the United States. We, we, in fact, have a big socialized enterprise 
a big socialist enterprise in the United States, public lands, the area of public lands in, owned by government in the United States, it's about six times larger than the surface area of France. It's a huge socialist operation. So what's the government do? They sell leases for mineral rights and drilling rights and so forth on these federal lands to oil and gas companies. And what's going on right now? Well, that their lease is outstanding. I, I think, as I recall, there are around 9,000 leases right now that are outstanding. But the problem is, and Washington says, oh, we have lots of leases, you know, lots of leases. There's been no problem. They forget to tell you that they're not issuing permits to operate on the leases. So the leases exist, but they, but they keep the door locked by not approving permits. So there's not drilling for new oil and gas on those leases that are outstanding. That's just one example that people can, can understand, especially your listeners down in, in the oil country. They can understand this. You have a lease, but they tell you you're not allowed to drill on the lease. So the lease doesn't do any good. I mean, actually, it's a bad deal because you have to pay for the lease and you're not even allowed to operate on the thing. So that, that's one thing. And there are other things, just, shall we say, the body language coming out of Washington. Of course, they stopped this so-called Keystone Pipeline. That, that was almost day one. and then. They've been beating up on the oil and gas companies. Now they're trying to drag oil companies into Washington to testify about price gouging. And the reason for that is they're trying to say that inflation is being caused by the oil and gas companies, the greedy oil and gas companies that are, that are going after excess profits and things like that. It has nothing to do with inflation. We've already gone through that. It's just a political stunt, but beating up on the oil and gas companies is not a way to encourage production. In fact, they've threatened to impose an excess profits tax on oil companies if they produce more. So, so that's another thing. As, as we're talking, as I'm thinking, they're just one thing after another. So what they're saying, the production of oil and gas is down from what it was a year ago in the United States. And they're saying the Biden administration, they're running all over the place. They're trying to even get more oil and gas from Venezuela, of all things, and Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, the Gulf states and all these things. But they're telling the domestic producers, oh, if you produce more, we're going to impose an excess profits tax on you. So it doesn't make any sense. But often things in Washington, D.C. don't make very much sense. Absolutely. Right. And to your point of what's happening in Washington, D.C., our fellow Americans, the decent, hardworking citizens of our country, and especially our engaged listeners in the Midwest and the South, they're deeply concerned about government spending. And last week, Congress passed a sweeping $1.5 trillion spending omnibus package, a long bill with over 2,741 pages. Democrats lauded a 6.7% increase to non defense discretionary spending. And in a PBS report posted 
I quote, in 2011, Republicans ended Congress' practice of slipping projects requested by members for their districts into their spending bills. The so-called earmarks were beloved by lawmakers eager to bestow them on constituents and by party leaders as a way to finagle rank-and-file support for legislation. And this year, Democrats controlling Congress brought them back rebranded as community projects and subject to tighter restrictions. They've proven extremely popular. And according to House figures, the expansive spending bill includes 2,021 projects worth $2.5 billion for the Chamber's Democrats. Republicans got 706 of them with $1.7 billion price tag, unquote. Professor Hankey, what are we to make of this omnibus bill of $1.5 trillion passed by Congress in the first place, and will we ever return to a balanced budget? The answer to the balanced budget is no. The last time we had surpluses in the federal budget was under President Bill Clinton. He, he was the most disciplined fiscal operator we've had in Washington since World War II, actually. The, la- the last two budgets Clinton had were actually in surplus, but that's history, as they say. I don't see that coming anytime soon. They're spending money like drunken sailors down there. You, you, you went through the thing, Joel, with that quote, and the Republicans are just as bad as the Democrats. They're, they're all in the same bag. So what happens? What, what does this mean, actually? It means that government spending crowds out the private sector of the economy. The government's getting bigger. If you look at the total economic pie, the slice of the pie taken up by the government's getting bigger and bigger. And, and that's bad news because the private sector gets squeezed away. And what's that do? That means that productivity in the economy gets a drag on it because Productivity comes from the private sector. The public sector doesn't generate productivity-enhancing activities, contrary to to the propaganda you get out of Washington, D.C. What you get from this is a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse. Waste, fraud, and abuse. You got billions of dollars in these bills, and, and most of these, you said earmarks, that's what we used to call these things, pork barrel projects. The bridge to nowhere, kind of. Dr. Hanke, from your excellent piece um, that you co-authored with John Greenwood, titled On Monetary Growth and Inflation in Leading Economies 2021 to 2022, Relative Prices at the Overall Price Level, you shared about the two most important developments in the global economy over the last three decades. And those were, one, was the market reforms in the Chinese economy, starting with Deng Xiaoping's four modernizations, which were launched in December 1978, and the subsequent opening of China to international trade. And secondly, the widespread movement during the 90s among developed economies to give central banks a degree of policy independence from the governments and to require them to pursue inflation targets. Uh, Dr. Hanke, could you kindly expand on this profound impact that these developments had on developed economies and what can we anticipate going forward? Deng Xiaoping was probably the, I would say, the most fundamental change in the economic scene in the world. China's obviously a big place, a lot of, a lot of people. He essentially embraced Adam Smith 
and free market economics. I, they cloaked it in other language, but the most massive privatizations in the history of man occurred after Deng's speech in December of 1978. And we, we've had this huge transformation and the most rapid growth. If you look at the real growth rate in China, it's just been phenomenal. Even now, it's slowed down. And their target for this year will be 5.5%. But they, they were growing at galloping pace. And now they have a, a huge economy in China. And so that was very transformative in an economic sense. And in a, in a power, in a geopolitical sense, it also was powerful. Because if you don't have a strong economy, you're not going to project much, much power. That's just been huge. The, the central bank independence thing was, I think, important, but compared to China's move towards capitalism, in fact, it, it was a, a minor footnote in the whole scheme of things. China is really the story in, in the last 50 years. And what it is, by the way, people get mixed up. It's a free market story. People that say free markets don't work, they don't have their heads screwed on. They're missing a few marbles. Look at China. China is the place to look. If, if you want to see what free markets are all about, look at China post-Deng speech. And Dr. Hanke, in conclusion, summarizing what you said, a rate of inflation follows the rate of monetary growth. As Dr. Milton Friedman famously said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And another statement that you had is inflation cannot be imported or exported. Uh, basically, the only time that this can happen is when two countries' exchange rates are fixed one with the other. Uh, therefore, the U.S. administration cannot blame Russia's war against Ukraine for inflation in America. Uh, Dr. Hanke, uh, what can we expect in relative price changes as a result of Russia's war against Ukraine? You've got all the commodities are going up. And the reason they're going up is that Russia produces a lot of commodities. They're, they're a big oil producer, so the price of oil goes up. Vanadium is something that we import into the United States. The price of vanadium skyrocketing because Russia is a big producer. The price of nickel has gone through the roof. And why? Because Russia is a big producer of nickel. So you go right down the list of, you know, silicone, all these commodities are just a very long list of commodities. The, the obvious one is oil. People see that. But there are many, many other things. Lumber, for example. Lumber is a big export of, from Russia. Well, the lumber prices have gone through the roof. So all those relative prices, anything that's being produced in Russia, that's being sanctioned against. And that's that's a lesson in sanctions. The only thing they advertise is, oh, sanctions. We're putting sanctions on. We're weaponizing this, that, and the other thing and, and going to war with Russia with sanctions. And that's hurting Russia. That That's true. It's also hurting us. They, they forget to tell you, if you start interfering with free trade and start putting sanctions on somebody, there are all kinds of unintended consequences and costs that have to be paid. And, and a lot of those things fall back on those that impose the sanctions in the first place. Sanctions aren't a free lunch. 
sanctions cost a lot in terms of those who are imposing them. So all these politicians running around wanting to put sanctions on this thing and that thing have to engage in some transparent advertising in the future. They're, they're, this is a really false advertising. They're, they're saying, oh, we can hurt somebody who's our enemy by putting sanctions on them, and, that, and that's a good deal. And they, they don't tell you, yeah, it does hurt the enemy, but it, it also imposes a lot of cost on us. I like the, what I call the Afghan effect. And the Afghan effect, especially farmers in the Midwest will remember this, Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979, and Jimmy Carter was the president, and, and Brzezinski was a national security advisor. Immediately, they, they put a boycott on U.S. grain exports to the Soviet Union. So, okay, that initially looked like it was going to hurt the Soviet Union. Well, the Soviet Union turned around, went to Argentina, cut a good deal for grain, bought all our grain at a good price. And what happened? It was a great deal for Argentina. It was a very bad deal for who? The, the U.S. farmers. And, and that's one reason Carter didn't win the second election, by the way, is because of the Afghan effect. A little place, Afghanistan, and bingo. You, you put your finger on a little thing with, a, with a, this boycott, this sanctioning thing, and all of a sudden you get all this ricocheting going on. U.S. farmers paid a big cost. Farmers in Argentina benefited tremendously, and so did the military junta, which was in power in Argentina. They, they were our foe then, and, and we were supporting them with this silly boycott thing that no, no one had ever thought the thing through. What, what's the Afghan effect going to be when we put these things? We, you, don't, you don't think it through. Everything is connected with everything else. And economics. Right. Dr. Steve Hankey, Professor Hankey, we thank you so much for this enlightening conversation on some of the key issues that are impacting Americans, our fellow Americans, our, in the heartland of America, both in the Midwest and the South. Just wanted to share with our listeners that we would encourage them to seek out Professor Steve Hankey's excellent pieces uh, in the Wall Street Journal and other publications. Uh, certainly uh, seek it out on your search engines and take time to read these important articles. Professor Steve Hankey is Professor of Applied Economics and founder and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. For our listeners, he was a senior economist on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors. Thank you so much, Professor Hankey, for joining us on America's Roundtable. And certainly, we look forward to having you return uh, to our program in the very near future. Thank you so much, Dr. Hankey. Good to be with you, Natasha and Joel. Have a good day. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of 
Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.